Frank Looper woke up, put on his bedroom slippers, and made a phone call. His mother came to him and asked him to check on his dad. Frank ended his call, grabbed his service revolver, went to the garage, and met his killer. That is the scant outline of how Greenville County's top drug enforcer lived the last hour before the gunshot that killed him. You likely know that story by now. Frank Looper was on the phone with a young woman named Rita, the woman he intended to marry. Rita still remembers the street noise behind Frank's voice on the morning of January 31st, 1975. Frank and I were on the phone. My tractor trailer traveled up the street. That is Rita's voice on the phone with me, 44 years after the murders of her fiancé Frank and his father Rufus. Frank was a veteran, a college grad, a cop, and her fiancé. He graduated from Furman, and he was in the Navy, and he had, you know, the time on the Sheriff's Department. He was a wonderful man. We suffered greatly by his loss. Rita was a nurse at the hospital. She suffered with depression issues long after Frank Looper's death. She coped, as she suspects Frank would have. It was very hard for me to get over it. I'm a Christian, and I, you know, spread the word anytime I can of the Lord. And, you know, Frank was a Christian. His father was. Rita says Frank was going to take his mother to the store that afternoon, out onto Greenville streets, where he and Rita knew anyone could be waiting to kill him. And there comes a risk with the job, and you accept that risk. You know, it's just part of your life. You can't live covered up. You have to live life. No one called on Rita to testify at the Looper murder trial. But when asked today, she'll tell you what she thinks of the conviction. You know, I have never been convinced that Wakefield did it. You know, it just didn't make sense. But if Charles Wakefield Jr., the man who spent 35 years in prison, didn't kill the Looper men during a midday robbery, then who did and why? What other motive would a killer possibly have? You've heard it from Looper's family. I've heard it from several sources. Frank Looper's drug war was getting serious. He was in the middle of a case, and he did have an informant. If Rita and other sources are right, Looper not only was about to pull off the biggest bust of his career, but he had an inside man, too. Rita says Frank thought somebody was out to get him, and was, as Rita tells it, rightly paranoid. It was just, just a very tragic situation. It was a very unusual situation. Frank was very paranoid in his job to begin with because people were after him. He got death threats on a continual basis. One of those threats, a dead-of-night drive-by at his house and another at his grandfather's house. One of Looper's neighbors remembered Looper canvassing his street, looking for an ID on the drive-by car. If Looper knew who did it, he never told anyone. If the police knew, they didn't say either. In fact, no one has ever publicly accused anyone of firing those warning shots. Until now. Last fall, when I sat down with Frank Looper's family, Adele McCauley and her 91-year-old mother, Julia, asked me two questions. I answered both questions at the time. But I haven't played the answers for you yet because I didn't have the information on the record. Who is there left that would have anything to lose unless the killer is still alive? I think it's possible the killer's still alive. You know who it is? I think I know 
one of the people uh, who would be a very good suspect if anybody cared to investigate mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think I know of at least two people, one living and one dead, mm-hmm. who were responsible for something else that happened outside that house. I was talking about the warning shots fired into the front of the Looper house. I had read about the gunfire earlier, but I didn't think I would ever find anyone who knew who did it, or anyone who could ever say that the bullets were actually meant as a warning. And then I got in touch with Fast Eddie Williams. This might sound weird, but I write to men in prison all the time. And because Murder, Etc. takes up so much of my time, I am way behind on my correspondence. I'm due to write a return letter to a member of South Carolina's notorious George family, who happens to also be a very nice man. There's a member of the Dawson gang waiting for me to write him back. And I still have no idea what I'm going to do with all the letters a South Carolina serial killer wrote to me. My poor letter writing etiquette is due in large part to the fact I spend so much time emailing with Fast Eddie Williamson something that would not have ever happened if not for the sitting sheriff of Greenville County, South Carolina. Hello? This is Sheriff Brown. Yes. This is Brad Willis. How are you? Hey, Brad Willis. I'm fine. Do you have any idea why I'm calling you right now? I have no idea. Okay. I hadn't spoken to Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown in years, since we both had a family connection to a local youth football team. I hadn't called him in a professional capacity, since he retired almost two decades ago, when I was still a TV news reporter. And I should say, I didn't tell Sheriff Brown I was recording the call at the time, because, here's a personal admission, I was paranoid as hell. I had to call the sheriff in September of 2018, because I'd heard something that scared me. After flying under the local law enforcement radar for a really long time while working on this story, I'd started to poke my nose a little farther out. Right about the same time, This happened. I got in touch with a friend of mine, Lee Brown. He was my boss when I worked at WYFF-TV. I was looking for news footage from the Looper murders. My boss wrote me back and told me he didn't have any footage, but weird thing, Johnny Mac Brown had recently called him up and asked about me, an employee who hadn't worked there in 13 years. And so I spent two weeks wondering why the most popular and respected sheriff in Greenville County's history suddenly cared what I was up to. After sweating that for a long time, I did the only thing I could think to do. I called the sheriff. I'm working on a project, so likely going to be a podcast. I explained what I was doing with murder, etc., and then asked what I really wanted to know. He said that you'd called and asked about me, so I was wondering if maybe word had gotten back to you or if you were just thinking of me for an entirely different reason. Sheriff Brown could have said he had a vision that I was a golden god who rode a giant horse and made all men fear me. And it wouldn't have surprised me as much as what he actually said. Uh, Eddie Williamson wrote me a letter and wanted to know if I knew Brad Willis. (laughs) For the record, that is the most uncomfortably I have ever laughed. I knew the name, but I could not put a face with it. So I called Lee and I said, tell me about Brad Willis. Sheriff Brown was still the kindly, grandfatherly man I had known for years. But people had told me this story goes higher than I'd ever believed. And I didn't know, other than up, which way I should be looking. So I laughed. I told the sheriff I'd call him someday and got off the phone. Relieved, the sheriff seemed comfortable with my investigation. And I remained relieved for about 30 seconds before thinking, wait, Fast Eddie Williamson 
wrote the sitting sheriff and asked him to check up on somebody. Me. And the sheriff did it? I didn't know where to look anymore, because by then, I didn't even know which way was up. The next few months were odd, as I tried to suss out just what in the hell was happening. How fast Eddie Williamson, a man I'd heard described in a litany of criminal terms, asked for and received a small favor from the Greenville County Sheriff. So, again, I did the only thing I could think to do. I went to see the Sheriff. Sheriff Brown. Hey, man. I was thinking about on the way over here, it's been 20 years since I walked in this office and yeah, Tracy Belko introduced me to you. Johnny Mac Brown was happy to talk about the old days. And during our conversation, he proved to be more candid than I had ever known any sitting sheriff to be. Settle one thing for me real quick, because it's, it's the first thing I called you about, because, you know, I've been writing back and forth with Eddie Williamson for a long time. The who? Uh, Eddie Williamson. Yes. And Fast Eddie. Fast Eddie. And, I mean, near as I can tell, Fast Eddie's a bad man. Fast Eddie's bad, but he became my friend. Tell me how. That's, that's, what, I'm con that's what I'm confused about. Well, Fast Eddie always called me when, obviously, when he needed something. Right. And um, he would write me letters and... Uh, and uh, never asked me for anything. He would just say, can you help me? Do, can you help me get transferred? Can, can you help me this? And uh, he and I just became pen pals. And uh, of course, I haven't heard from, from Eddie. As a matter of fact, I did hear from him. He wrote me about you. Yeah, that's, that's why I asked. Yeah, asked me about you. And I said, I don't remember Brad, but uh, I think he's trying to do a story. I told the sheriff I understood the Fast Eddie dynamic because I really did. At that point, I was about three months into chatting with Eddie. And without thinking about it too much, one day, I'd taken time out just to look up some football stats for him. Still, Sheriff Brown's reputation in this community is relatively pristine. And so I wondered aloud, why would he risk doing a favor for such a notorious character? You know, and he would just uh, always ask me to help him do something. And if I could do it, I'd do it. So, I mean, but you can reconcile that in your head just because you know he's locked up and not coming out, or? Yeah. No, I just don't. Um, it's just me. I'm loyal to a uh, fault, my friends tell me. Yeah. And uh, Eddie asked me for help, and I tried to help him. You should know, this is a take that not a lot of people can understand. The vast majority of people who are interested in this story, and the many others that might involve Fast Eddie Williamson, think about the dice cheater and the card mechanic the bank robber, the drug dealer, the man who shot Tommy Pearson in the face. To know the other Fast Eddie takes a lot of time, or handcuffs. Uh, my name is Robert Watley. I work for the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Brown gave me my opportunity to, to work here uh, in August of 1993, and I've, and I've been here ever since. Robert Watley is around my age, which is to say he was a child when Fast Eddie was at his peak. Watley came up in the Greenville County Sheriff's Office in the 1990s. The atmosphere internally was fantastic. A lot of camaraderie, good close-knit bunch of guys. Uh, they accepted me with open arms. I had no family or friends here in Greenville. Totally new town for me. And, and I, I really felt like this was home from day one. The atmosphere on the street was a little different. It, this was right on the heels I'd say a year, year and a half, out on the heels of the Rodney King verdict. And so things were a little hostile going into this job. In the jet wash of the Rodney King verdicts, Watley learned the most important thing about being a cop. You are the, the peacemaker 
and whatever that may entail, whether it be talking to people, whether it be sometimes using your hands or other force on the people to get them to do what you need to do to keep the scene safe. Uh, you talk a certain way, you carry yourself a certain way. It's all about not just your, your verbal uh, acuities, but it's, it's physical, the way you move, the way you look at people, eye contact. You look like a cop, you act like a cop, you dress like a cop, you use 10 codes, you talk like a cop. Even off duty as a uniform cop, you know, you and I sit around, yes, yeah, furnish, yeah, that's neg negative and negative on that, or 10 4, whatever the case may be. Watley is a born cop, now a lieutenant over the division that connects with Greenville County's community, school kids, neighborhood leaders, and the like. But 20 something years ago, the kid wanted what lots of his just say no generation wanted. He wanted to be a narc. October 1998, I'd put in several times prior and just my name didn't come up. But October 1998, I got the nod to join a narcotics unit, which was huge. I mean, it was, it was a very coveted unit to be in. Had to really unlearn everything I had been taught the, the five years prior as a uniform deputy. How to, how to not act like a cop, how to not talk like a cop. And it, it, was, it was quite difficult. But this was what Watley was meant to do. This was an undercover identification that was made for me. 20 years removed, Watley now looks like a suburban dad. I was Chuck. Chuck, Chuck from Easley. Chuck from Easley. Um, but in his 1990s flannel, Chuck from Easley looked like he could sing every line to Nirvana's Nevermind, recite Pulp Fiction line by line, and then perform Reservoir Dogs as an encore. The way the name Chuck came up is we had a bunch of cover shirts that we just go put on, and they were shirts we'd bought from Goodwill, old leftover like service work shirts, and they'd have a name embroidered. One of my first undercovers was picking up prostitutes, and that was a good low-level, you know, low-danger level assignment to get a new rookie narcotics deputy, you know, kind of integrated into doing undercover work. So I was going to go out and pick up prostitutes, and I put this cover shirt on, and it had the name embroidered Charles on it. We go out and pick it up prostitutes, and this one lady looked over at me, and she said, so your name's Charles? I was like, yeah, my name's Charles. And uh, she said, well, you don't look like a Charles. I said, well, my friends call me Chuck. <laughs> and uh, from there, it, uh, I've been Chuck ever since. There's a not-so-family-friendly second punchline to that story, but we'll save that for another day, when the next part isn't so important. Like, so important you remember a case number from half your life ago. It was year 2000. I remember it because the case number is 00-035313. I remember it like I started it yesterday. Uh, probably the biggest case I've ever been a part of here. Watley was still a young narc, on call, on a weekend. It's a Sunday morning, early, 7.15, 7.30 in the morning, and my phone rings. A fellow deputy told Watley he stopped a guy who had an ounce of cocaine. 2000, I was 28 years old, so David was probably early 40s, mid 40s, so he's a little older than me, and you can tell he's been around a block or time or two. He looks over at me and goes, I'm about to make your career. I'm about to make your career. Sounds like something you'd hear from a smarmy portrait photographer. Turns out, it's white noised and narcs, too. They've heard it all before. But this guy said he has something special. He says, uh, I can buy cocaine from Fast Eddie Williamson. And he's doing his head kind of like waiting for my reaction. Well, I'm not from Greenville. I moved here just to have this job in 93. So I don't know what happened in the 70s. I've heard rumors of this, you know, Dawson gang and Bub Skelton just through my short tenure at the sheriff's office, but no idea. So I look at him. Okay, who the hell's Fast Eddie Williamson? The snitch looked at Watley as if he had just won the gold medal in the Olympics of stupid Greenville questions. 
and then told Watley who Fast Eddie was. Watley remained, at least in that moment, unimpressed. So you say he's a Billy Bad Butt, okay. You can buy dope from him, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't need to get a statement from you. The snitch gave up Fast Eddie. So Watley got the man bonded out of jail with one condition. The snitch had to set up Fast Eddie. Watley carried the information to work the next week. And our lieutenant was a guy named Alan Saltmarsh, one of the finest men I've ever had the opportunity to work for. And he comes in and says, look, we got a unit meeting. It's, it's really important, guys. So the whole unit gathers around. He goes, look, just got some information. We got somebody that's out of prison. We need to, we need to find a way to get back into jail. He's a real, real bad guy from way back. His name's Arthur Edward Williamson, Jr. Fast Eddie. Some of y'all probably in here know him. And I Watley could not wait to impress his boss. He raised his hand only to have his lieutenant tell him to hold on. I raised my hand. He's like, Watley, not right now, not right now. <laughs> so he goes on and tells how, you know, how he, when he was a young cop and how the, all these things that either Fast Eddie did or has been accused of doing. And we really got to find a way to get next to this guy quickly. And I raised my hand. He's like, Watley, Watley, I said not right now. I was like, yes, sir, lieutenant. So he goes through the rest of his story. He goes, so I'm telling all of you right now. Drop what you're doing, go out, talk to you people on the street, and find somebody who can get up next to Eddie. And I raised my hand, he goes, Wiley, what? I said, Lieutenant, I talked to a guy Sunday. I got a statement from him. So he buys all his cocaine and meth from, from Fast Eddie Wimsley. He's like, well, Wiley, damn it, why don't you say something? And the uh, whole place erupts into laughter. But he's like, drop what you're doing, take any help you need. I don't care how much it costs. Go, go get a case on Fast Eddie. Watley's snitch turned into a ghost. But the statement he had signed against Fast Eddie was enough probable cause for an arrest warrant. That was my first eyeball contact with Eddie Williamson. He was sitting on a bed, he was handcuffed, and I read the arrest warrant to him, which stated at the very bottom the handwritten part I had put in there about a, this probable cause was, was obtained through a written statement given by David And I said, Eddie, do you understand what we just read to you? And very calm, very polite. He said, yes, I do. He said, can I ask you a favor? I said. I don't know if I can do it, but you can ask. He said, will you take these handcuffs off me and give me eight hours? He said, I'll promise you I'll turn myself in and I'll have David on a slab for you at the ER. That was how Robert Watley met Fast Eddie. The relationship got off to a quick start. Fast Eddie was ready to cooperate, and he hinted he would tell more than anybody expected on one condition. Eddie kept telling us, look, he said, I'll tell you whatever it is you want to know. He said, I just, I need one thing. I need the death penalty taken off the table. He said, because I know there's no statute of limitations on a death penalty case. He said, I'll talk to you about drugs. That's no big deal. He said, but the things you really, you all really want to know about, I got to have to make sure the death penalty is taken off the table before I mention anything. Watley took the offer up the food chain. And while he waited for a decision, Fast Eddie decided to prove he could come through. Eddie says, you know what, fellas, I'm going to give you all a freebie. Made a phone call. Don't know who he called. All I know is a guy, he said, I'm gonna call up a guy and get some methamphetamine here in Greenville Forest. Called up a guy, went to the Sands Motel on Poinsett Highway, and there he was waiting for us with a little over a pound of methamphetamine. And that was a freebie. Don't anything in return. I'm just to show you all that I can do, what I'm telling you I can do. No matter how hard Watley tried, he couldn't get the solicitor, Bob Ariel, to sign off on the no death penalty deal. So whatever Fast Daddy knew about the old days, he didn't say. Nevertheless, Watley spent countless hours around Fast Eddie after that. They did a cop seven, eight years. So I had a little, little dirt under my feet, but still a long way to go. I really felt like, you know what, 
I can't teach this guy anything. I can't break this guy. I can't be Mr. Hard Cop and come across because he's going to chew me up and spit me out. I knew that in my heart of hearts. I said, you know, this is one of these times where it will behoove me to shut my mouth and listen because I am in the midst of someone who has been there, done that. After all his time with Fast Eddie, Watley ended up realizing, while Eddie was always looking out for Eddie first and foremost, Eddie was a man he could trust. I don't think for a minute he was trying to help us. I mean, he was trying to help himself, and he knew that we were the tool that he had to use, and that's exactly what we, what we were. We were a tool that he was trying to use to get freedom. I don't want to make him sound like Robin Hood or anything like that, because bottom line, he's, he's a bad guy. He's a gangster. But deep down, underneath all that, I, I do think he had somewhere some good intentions. He was a man of his word. When Eddie went to prison the final time, Watley went to the sentencing, believing in his heart that Fast Eddie had made him a better cop. Eddie saw Watley and his fellow Greenville County narcs walk into the courtroom. And it's the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life. He turned around, he locked eyes with the three of us that just walked in the room and he went, fucking Greenville County, and turned around. And that's the last words he ever said to us. But I took, I mean, that was a compliment. He, he recognized, you know, a little podunk narcotics detective like me with eight years experience. This Greenville icon, this legendary bad guy, you know, recognized us as having a part in what was fixing to happen to him. Watley trusted Fast Eddie. Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown calls Fast Eddie a friend. 1970s prosecutor Billy Wilkins, federal prosecutors, and FBI agents, they all trusted Fast Eddie. I thought about all of that trust when Fast Eddie told me something I'd wanted to know for years. Who he says shot up the front of Frank Looper's house, and who paid them to do it, and why. That is coming up right after this break. I'll be honest, when I started producing this podcast, I had no idea how much time it would take. I used to cook for my family all the time, and that hadn't happened in a while. Until last week, when my first Green Chef box showed up. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company. It makes cooking easy with dinner options that work around your lifestyle, and not the other way around. Green Chef meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore. I eat everything so I opted for the omnivore. Everything in the Green Chef box is hand-picked and delivered right to your door with ingredients that are pre-measured, perfectly proportioned, and mostly prepped. I made Green Chef's Moroccan chicken thigh kebabs the other night, and everybody loved it so much, I had to fight my family for the last kebab. Green Chef is now offering Murder Etc. listeners a special deal. For a total of $75 off, that's $25 off each of your first three boxes, go to greenchef.us slash murderetc75. It's an affordable way to eat healthier, high-quality food when your life is busy or when you want weeks to be easier. Again, for a total of $75 off, that's $25 off each of your first three boxes. Go to greenchef.us slash murderetc75. After Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown vouched for me with Fast Eddie Williamson, I started an email conversation with Eddie that's been going on for nine months. A conversation that's been about sports, fantasy novels, gambling, lots more, but mostly about the 1970s. And one day in September, off the record, Eddie told me about a time two men pulled up in front of Frank Looper's house and started shooting. Just a few weeks before this episode, Fast Eddie went on the record about it, saying 
who fired the shots at Frank Looper's house. I'm going to read Fast Eddie's words exactly, with one exception. I'm not using the last name of one of the men allegedly involved because I believe he's still alive and I've not yet been able to reach him for comment. Here's what Eddie wrote about the first time he disagreed with two men he had known for a very long time. My first disagreement with Bub and Luke was when they hired men named Tip Gibson and Jerry to shoot a shotgun into Frank's father's house to scare him. Bub and Luke were afraid Lieutenant Looper was trying to bust them for the burglary of Table Rock Laboratory on I-85, where over $6 million in wholesale price drugs were stolen. That is what Eddie wrote. Tip Gibson and the man named Jerry were both convicted of Dawson gang robberies. As the song goes, Jerry was a race car driver who managed to get one checkered flag before turning himself into a bank robber. Tip Gibson graduated from real estate and construction work to life with the Dawson gang. His brother, Phil Gibson, was part of the gang too. And Phil Gibson was once a Greenville County deputy who worked under Bob Skelton. And Phil Gibson owned race cars, including the ones Jerry the race car driver raced. Just like that, Fast Eddie told me he had the answer to a mystery I'd been trying to solve for years, saying Tip Gibson and Jerry the race car driver shot up Frank Looper's home because Bub Skelton and Luke Cannon paid them to do it, and all because of Table Rock, Table Rock Labs, and they got a, they said a million dollars worth of amphetamines. All of those drugs stolen during the big Table Rock Lab heist, two criminal kingpins sending thugs to scare a drug cop. It all made sense in the context of the 1970s criminal underworld. Even if it didn't fit the context of who Bub Skelton's friends said he became. As a journalist, as a human being, there have been many times I've questioned the stories about Bub Skelton. I've questioned myself and wondered if I was focusing too much on the evil caricature of Bub and not listening hard enough to the people who spoke well of him. Take your Bibles tonight. Turn to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 2. People like Reverend Sammy K. Jr. Uh, Dad, for allowing me to stand in his pulpit while he's away. Just a few weeks before this episode, I found myself watching a live broadcast of Reverend K.'s sermon, a sermon on the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark, a sermon that all of a sudden pivoted to the Murder Etc. podcast. They're interviewing Johnny Mack and uh, Wilkins and different ones. and I just climbed the stairs in my house. I had my laptop in my hands. I just stopped there, knelt on the floor, and listened with my mouth hanging open. So I got to following it, and episode five came up, and the title of it was Bub. It was about Bub Skelton, who was a member of this church. Kay listened to what I'd reported about Bub, the ugly stories of murder charges, of corruption, bank robbery, Gambling. They talked about his years when he was in prison. They talked about his gambling, murder, mafia, whatever, everything else that he was involved in. The sheriff's department. Sounds bad. But see, that's a secular thing, talking about somebody on the sheriff's department that was rough and bad. But let me tell you the other part of the story. The other part of the story was about the last years of Skelton's life and about him running into a preacher, Sammy K. Jr.'s dad. Dad said, Bub, won't you come see me at church one day? Bub said, I just got out of prison. I could never walk into that place. Dad said, oh, yes, you could. I'd love to have you. Kay preached about what it means to be a friend, to carry a person to the Lord, no matter how heavy the burden. 
Kay's sermon ended with him crying about the day Bub Skelton found God. Bub gave his heart to Jesus in the parking lot. Bub came to church a murderer, a thief, and everything else you could call a man. But because a pastor didn't care, and reached out to somebody who nobody else wanted. Today, when we go to heaven, that day I step off, I'm going to see Bub Skelton in heaven. You are too. That's called grace. It's worth noting no jury ever convicted Bub Skelton of murder, but that didn't stop people from calling him a murderer. Sammy K. Jr. came to know Bub Skelton outside the church too. After getting saved, Skelton spent Christmas Eves with the Kay family in the church rectory, a home that at the time still had bullet holes in it. Maybe you'll remember this story. Didn't that happen at Daddy's house? At it happened at, at Granddaddy's house, too. My, my Daddy's house. Because when I lived in the house, people would go, what's that? I said, it's a bullet hole. <laughs> when, when did it happen at your, uh, at your, at your Daddy's house? Right here? before Frank was killed. But, but you remember that happened? You remember your Daddy telling you about that? Yeah, I, I, went, I mean, I lived I've in that house, there, and I I, saw it. every time I'd go in the house, it'd be like, there's that bullet hole. That church rectory, where Bub Skelton spent his last few Christmas Eves, was once the home of Frank Looper Sr. It was also the house where the Kay family got a call on Christmas Eve 1993. That is the day Bub Skelton died at the age of 65. A sad day for the Kay family but one of celebration, because they believed, against all odds, Bub Skelton was going to heaven. Because I'm here to tell you, I, the grace of God can reach further down than any person could ever reach up. Kay's sermon was compelling, one that could make you think, could Bub actually have been the guy people said he was? in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? After all, there are highly respected people in this town who say Bub Skelton was a good man, in spite of the crimes people know about. Here's what Johnny Mac Brown said. I certainly didn't approve of what Bub Skelton did, but Bub Skelton and, my, and his dad and my dad used to rabbit hunt together. You really? know, so yeah, John, John Skelton and my dad rabbit hunt together. I've known Bub, Bub, I knew Bub for a year. Could Bub have possibly been that bad? Could he have possibly hired men to shoot up Frank Looper's house? If you ask one man, a man you already know, well, you're in for a story from a man who tells a great one. <laughs> he was always hungry. <laughs> Damn the sly you ever seen, he'd order a dozen eggs. <laughs> Leonard Brown, the two-time sheriff's candidate and longtime owner of Southeastern Alarm Systems. This is the city, Greenville, South Carolina, the mission to secure the homes of the community. Not with brilliant police action and enforcement, but with Southeastern Alarm, the good guy's best friend, the robbers. The man who would answer his own alarms and catch robbers in the act, including, he says, sheriff's deputies, Leonard Brown, alarm man, family man, the man Bub Skelton considered a mortal enemy. Brown thought Bub wanted him dead, and Brown started sneaking up to his own alarm scenes just to avoid what he thought was an ambush. Well, I hear him on the radio, I was a little reluctant. I hear him on the radio, one of them tells another and said, make an appointment with me down there in the woods with him. I want to take care of his ass anyway. So I ain't going down there to find out. So they kept calling me and Bub keeps calling me, you know, want me to go down there and 
What Brown is saying is that Bub Skelton would have deputies try to lure Brown to scenes where who knows what might happen. I said, that's your job. I ain't got no business down there. I signed a warrant. I know their names. You know their names. Go find them. That's y'all's problem. But I done heard one of them telling nothing on the damn radio. I was monitoring all their stuff. And that same night, these two guys went into Armstrong School, come out. I seen them coming out. I was hid in the bushes, watch them come out, two deputy sheriff. That same night, they kicked the door open on the uh, Lakeview, Lakeview Munich High School in the kitchen door. A couple of guys sitting on the hood with a rifle over on beside that church. I sneaked up on them. I could have shot them, but I didn't. I never went to that door all night. I get back home, Bub calls me, wanting to know why in the hell I ain't answering no calls. Why in the hell you ain't answering no alarm calls tonight? What the hell's wrong with you? I said, hell, I done answered three or four. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> you telling a goddamn lie. That wasn't the only night, nor as scary as it got for Leonard Brown, when he sneaked up on an alarm scene at an old school he'd been to before. And I sneak around there in the bushes, got these big old high bushes there, I sneak around there. I don't see no cars out there or nothing. I use around the building. I get around about where that guy come out that window. I get around there, I see a gun sticking out the window. About this far, you know. That's the damn gun sticking out the window. And I froze. I got laid right up beside the building, and I sat there. Seemed like a damn hour, but I don't think it's that damn long. Waiting on him to come out the damn building or something to see what he's going to do, you know. Sitting there with a damn gun stuck out the window. I waited and I waited and I waited. And I guess he finally just gave me out. He must have been going to shoot me, the only thing I could figure. I hear him tromping back through the building. So I sneak around the back, see somebody pull up there and pick him up. And I never will forget the tag number. It was CG145. That's county government number 145. I found out that Bub was driving the car most of the time, but I don't know if he was then. That is a pretty serious thing to say about a man. The type of thing people might say is just a story Brown cooked up. The type of thing people might say, what proof do you have that Bub was a threat to you? Good thing for Leonard Brown. Back in the day, he was really good with a tape recorder. That voice you heard, Leonard Brown says, it's Bub Skelton. And a phone call Bub made one morning. Leonard Brown recorded it as he did dozens of other conversations. They're all on cassette tapes Brown has saved since the 1970s. The biggest problem that I've had with these tapes is not so much the deterioration of the audio tape itself, but the deterioration of the, you know, the mechanics of the, of the cassette shell. That's Leonard Brown's son, a man who knows a lot about audio and who has been taking countless hours to get the audio from his dad's tapes to me so I can use it here. It is no easy task. If I were to stick this tape right here in a tape machine right now, it would chew the tape up. Leonard Brown Jr. meticulously cracks open those old, deteriorated cassettes. So some are easier than others. Sometimes I get lucky. First thing I usually do is break that tab open. There, and then I'll start cracking. And very carefully transfers the analog tape to a new, sturdy, safe cassette tape shell. You know, let's, let's face it, my dad didn't buy the most expensive tapes he could find back in the day. And we're talking tapes that go all the way back to about 1970. And these shells are glued together, so they literally have to be broken. And then watch him walk across to a huge wall of stereo equipment and computers, put the cassette tape in, and turn the sound 
into a digital file. As you'll see, there's a big bottle of golden grain over there, grain alcohol. Well, that's not for sipping. That's for, <laughs> that's for cleaning tape heads. It's a process that, including listening for the important stuff, can take hours per tape. And it's a process that resulted in finding this. I want to talk to you, and, and I just want to talk to you man to man, look at you, and, and uh, get this thing straightened out. A phone call Brown says he got at his house one morning from Bub Skelton. What's, what's the problem? What's the problem? Yeah, what have I done so bad? You started all that stuff. You talked about you talked about Billy breaking in uh, B&R sales. You talked about the FBI going to come get me in this and the other. And you talked about me being a crook. I just want to talk to you. I'm not threatening you. I just want to talk to you. A phone call that you probably don't want to listen to in front of kids or anyone who's going to have a big problem with blasphemy. Bub started off at least somewhat cordially. This call came about five weeks after Bub had left the sheriff's office, where he'd been working for years as a deputy. You told people I threatened you. You told people I was a crook. You told people the FBI was coming after me. You've hurt my family, you hurt my children. I ain't children. told nobody the FBI's coming at you. You're a goddamn liar, you have. I can't play the whole tape for you because the call, and the one Bub made after hanging up on Brown, goes on for nearly an hour. Skelton repeats himself a lot during the call as he tries to convince Brown to meet him in person. I'm going to talk to you, but you've got to face me about it. I want to talk to you about it. You know, I'm going to look right straight in your eye and talk to you about it. Bub wants Brown to get up right then and there and meet him at the solicitor's office or the sheriff's office so they can hash it all out in front of someone official. Brown tells Bub the only thing he did was repeat what someone else said on election night when Cash Williams defeated Bub's boss, Sheriff Bob Martin. I just told him what that nut told me that was down there at the election headquarters that night. Don't, don't come, don't come in that, Lenny. Well, I've, uh, listen, you hear me? Look, just wait a minute. I'm not going to wait a goddamn minute about nothing. You have given me hell. You have crucified me. You've run your mouth. You've lied on me. Bub also believes Leonard Brown has been talking to a grand jury about him. Well, what in the hell did you go to the photo grand jury for? I got to the grand jury about you. You're a goddamn liar. I didn't even have you on the... You're a goddamn liar. You had Mac Wilson. Now, you don't answer Leonard, you're going to talk Look, to me. Look, I never even cared that's before the grand jury you, about you. Hey, you're going to talk to me. Now, you understand that? Well, just wait a minute. I never cared that's before the grand jury about now, you. Now, turn your tape on, but you're going to talk to what me. What you heard there is Bub acknowledging that Leonard Brown is probably recording the call, and Bub simply not caring. Not nearly as much as he cares about what he believes Brown said to cop Billy Ledbetter. How many people did you tell you going to FBI is going to come pick Bub up? You didn't tell Billy that, huh? I told Billy that that guy told me from Atlanta what that guy told me. You are a goddamn liar. You told Billy one high bub's gonna be on the FBI gonna take you back. Over the next couple of minutes, Bub Skelton gets increasingly angry and seems to be forcing himself to remember that Brown is taping the call. Well, you son of a bitch, you wouldn't pay Jesus Christ. You talk about FBI taking somebody. You know you're a no good motherfucker. And, and God damn it, turn your tape player on you. It's all very loud, but short of needing to have his mouth washed out with soap, Skelton has not gone as far as to overtly threaten Leonard Brown. What the fuck do you want to pick on me for? I ain't picking on you. What'd you run around and run your old goddamn mouth for? Huh? I ain't picked on you at all. Leonard, 
Now, listen. I want to ask you something like a gentleman. I'm mad. Sure I am. But I am a gentleman. You want to meet me at the sheriff's office or where you want to meet me? You're going to have to talk to me. Well, I'm talking to you now. You're going to have to talk to me first. Bub's gentlemanly side lasts exactly 12 seconds until Brown mentions a local attorney named Dick James who represented Fast Eddie and others one who practiced law in Greenville until his suicide in January of 2019. Reminded of Dick James, Bub went from gentleman to downright mean really quickly. Dick James used to make a dick to ask me not to run. He made a fucking fool out of you. He laughed how stupid ass you were to get out there and sling all that shit. Said, well, that, that moron son of a bitch, he's a genius that travels this high school, but he's a goddamn fool. He made a Seven minutes into the call, Skelton announces another grievance. Did you say that you had a machine gun that you were going to shoot me with? No, I ain't said I was going to shoot you with. I ain't threatened to shoot nobody. Did you say that? No, I didn't. Have you got one? I ain't got no machine gun. You got something to shoot through the windshield and kill me and everybody in my car? Is that the talk you've been putting out? I've got a dozen people coming to Tell me that you've been off Charles Man Generator Shop. You got a damn machine gun. You shoot my car and kill me and my whole family. I don't give a flying quite what somebody told you. Charles Man's I ain't threatened shooting your car and had no reason threatened shooting your car. The call goes round and round like this for another ten minutes, during which time Bub Skelton maintains his cool, until Leonard Brown is fed up with all the machine gun talk. I've had my wife, or my child, or my little girl, or my old boy. And accidentally get behind you and have you shoot back there and kill every goddamn one of us. I feel like... Look, I'm not no damn fool. I well, don't do no such brain and stuff. I ain't never told nobody I was going to shoot nobody. Well, why in the goddamn hell won't you come to the solicitor's office? Why won't you come to the sheriff's office? Well, I you told know you to call the solicitor and line it up if you want to. God huh? damn it, I think I'll be down there this morning. I can't go down there this morning. I'm sorry. Well, I do be sorry that you fuck with me, because if I keep you fucking around me, I'm going to hurt you, Leonard. And there it is. Eighteen minutes into the call, Bub makes the first overt threat. And after ranting about his rights as an American citizen to address Brown face-to-face on the matter, Skelton doubles down. You better not accidentally run up behind me. If you do, God damn it, I'm going to do something to you. That's the only time I threatened you, because I'm telling you right now I don't trust you. Over the course of the next several minutes, Bub threatens Brown a couple more times, goes back to insisting on a face-to-face meeting, and then reveals to Brown that he quit the sheriff's office. And then, Bub goes back to being worried about Brown shooting his family, using a scenario that he repeats a few times during the call, taking his son, who believes he's a superhero, to buy some bubble gum at the 24-hour store. Or something like that. I'm going to take a dent from my little old boy. The kids will meet Frank Brown jump over the brand new building. If I was to take him up to the 24-hour store to get some bubble gum. If I was to ask you. You must think I am completely insane. I do. Think I, I think you shoot are. anybody like that. You must be like I'm completely crazy. I do. I do. And if you don't come down and talk to me and see Mr. Zarper, or the sheriff's office. Maybe me and you both better go see a psychiatrist if we're in that damn bad of shape. That's why I ain't even talked about doing no crap like that. I think I can use you as goddamn shock treatment. If you don't come down to the goddamn sheriff's office and see me, I think I can make you wish you had. I'm not going to live in fear. Because I can come up to your goddamn house and you ain't got guts nothing but for me. Damn it, cunt. 
when I want to do that part. Dare me to come. Call my hand. That is how Bub eventually gets around to responding. What he sees as a threat from Brown. Dare me to come to your house so you won't shoot my kids? That's what he said. Dare me to come. I hadn't said I was going to and quit saying I did because by George a bunch of crap. I ain't said I was going to hurt your kids. Good God almighty. Bub calms down again for about five minutes, insisting that all he wants is for he and Leonard to be able to walk around without dreading running into each other. Well, Look, I'm not dreading to start with. Well, I'll get you with a goddamn, you understand that? I'm not dreading Because I'll wade right in there and I'll run you out of your own goddamn house if I took a fucking notion because I know I can do it. A few seconds later, Bub Skelton seems to realize he has just straight up threatened Leonard Brown and tries, unsuccessfully, to walk it back. I'll come up there. I could. I won't. I'm not going to. But I come up there and run you plumb out of your fucking house because I know if I come up there what I'm going to do. After that, there is no stopping Bub. He seems to be unable to control himself. Bub Skelton proves himself to be the kind of man who might just try to put a scare into a cop, the kind of man who might just set up a drive-by, the kind of man who would ask another man to ponder his afterlife and suggest that afterlife might be coming soon. Leonard, you, you believe you're going to have when you die? I ain't concerned with that right now. I'm concerned with your problem. I want you to quit thinking that I'm going to... Well, I'm going to show you one thing. I'm, I'm coming to your house. Upset your wife, upset you, or upset me, I'll be there in a minute. Bob Skelton did not show up at Leonard Brown's house that day. But, as Skelton predicted at one point in the call, those two men also did not become good fishing buddies. Despite crossing paths many times, Frank Looper and Bob Skelton were not friends either. And if Fast Eddie Williamson is right, the big case Looper was working on just before he died may well have been the multi-million dollar Table Rock Lab heist. And if Fast Eddie Williamson is right, Frank Looper's warning from Bub was not a phone call. It was a drive-by shooting. It's worth one more listen of what Bub said to Leonard Brown when he boiled over. If Brown wasn't going to do what Bub wanted, Bub had plans. And what did he say? Dare me to come. I think I can use you as goddamn shock treatment. If you don't come down to the goddamn sheriff's office see me, I think I can make you wish you had. I'm not going to live in fear. Because I can come up to your goddamn house and you ain't got guts in it, but for me. Dare me to come. Thank you to Leonard Brown and Leonard Brown Jr. for allowing me to use that tape of the call from Bub Skelton and putting in the work to digitize it. Also, thank you to the Reverend Sammy K. Jr. for allowing me to use portions of his sermon for this episode. Also, if you'd like to see his whole sermon, I'll be posting a video of it on our website, murderetcetrapodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. Also, we're about to launch something new. We have a listener named Tim Joner. He suggested a live fan meetup called A Bunch of Amateurs, a play on Sheriff Cash Williams' description of Greenville's criminals. So on June 1st, we're going to launch Amateurs Etc. It serves two purposes. First, it will allow you to support Murder Etc. in a meaningful way and make sure the podcast keeps going all the way to the end. 
And second, it's a special community for people who just can't get enough murder, etc. And we know there are lots of you. Once you're a member of Amateurs Etc., you'll get access to a Facebook group that's open only to members like Tim. Also, people who appear in Murder Etc., like Andy Etheridge, Larry Smith, Leonard Brown Jr., and others, will be part of that closed group. It'll be a safe, non-public place to talk about the case. Amateur Etc. members will also have a chance to get bonus episodes that won't be available to everyone for months, if ever. And there's a lot more to it, but we'll save that for now. Just keep an eye out on our Facebook page and website, murderetcetrapodcast.com, starting June 1st. Thanks for listening this week. We'll be back next week with another full episode of Murder Etc. Murder Etc.